What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to Business on the Brink, a production from iHeartRadio and How Stuff Works. If you avoided Crazy Eddie and navigated cities of circuits, you would inevitably find yourself there. You might consult with a squad of geeks or lose yourself in aisles of electronic doodads and gizmos. And heaven help you if you happen to be wearing a blue polo shirt at the time. This is Best Buy in Business on the Brink. Hey everybody, I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Ariel Kasten. And today we're talking about Best Buy. This topic was requested by two, count them, two listeners, Emily Welch and Ryan MacArthur, both employees at Best Buy who wanted to hear how the company avoided the pitfalls that all these other big tech and big box stores hit. Yeah, the the retail apocalypse mm-hmm. that has closed down many stores. Like we talked about Borders being one of them. Yeah, and, and Radio Shack. And then there's also Circuit City, which I'm sure we'll cover at some point. And we'll talk about a little bit in this episode. It does play into the history of Best Buy. So in the age of Amazon and online shopping, Best Buy story is pretty interesting, and you could say that the company owed its entire existence to a natural disaster. It's a twister! It's a twister! It's like Wizard of Oz! Yeah. That's Uh, my twister noise. Here's the crazy thing is that we're making a joke, but that's actually true. The reason why Best Buy exists, you could argue, is largely because of a rogue tornado. How many businesses can say that? I mean— Usually they don't create— Usually tornadoes don't create industry. They, yeah, they destroy industry. They, they might create opportunities for construction. And yes. that's but they rarely they rarely improve a business. Yes. Okay. So uh how did Best Buy get started, Jonathan? Well, if you look at the name Best Buy, that dates back to 1983. But the history of the company is 
older than that. It actually goes back another 20 years almost. And that history really starts in 1966. There was a guy named Richard M. Schultz. And he also had a mysterious business partner. And Charles I, Schultz. <laughs> no, peanuts? no. No, no. I don't, I don't know who the business partner was because every article I read, everyone, every single one said Richard Schultz and his business partner. And associate. Yeah, there was never a point where it actually identified who that person was. Now, ultimately, we could say that name doesn't, really play into the history of Best Buy that much because Schultz would go on and buy out his business partner after about a year. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty early on when that business partner was extricated from the business. So I guess it doesn't really matter, but it bugs me as a researcher. Mm -hmm. I'm sure when you've researched some of these topics, you've encountered similar things where you... Yeah, I go down a rabbit hole and I spend hours trying to find and then corroborate information. Like, uh, we recorded an episode on Vlasic, and I tried to find the stork's name, and I could find one article, and it was uncorroborated, but I spent so much time trying to confirm the information. Yeah, that's the level of detail and uh, dedication we bring to you (laughs) to figure out the name of a cartoon mascot stork of a pickle company. Anyway, let's get back to Best Buy. So, uh, according to the story, Schultz would actually mortgage his own home in order to get enough money to really get into this business and to open up a store, which was at the time a stereo equipment store for Mm -hmm. car stereos and home stereos. And uh, he called it Sound of Music. Ooh, ooh, Jonathan, I know who the mysterious partner was. Are you going to say it was Julie Andrews? I was going to say a nun named Maria, but same difference. Okay, no, (laughs) neither of those are correct. Uh, The first store was established in St. Paul, Minnesota. And within the first year of business, he he led the company to go ahead and make its first acquisition. I guess you go big or you go home. And in this case, it was actually a couple of companies uh, called Kincraft Hi-Fi Company and the Burgo Company. These were other audio equipment companies. I'm That's, guessing in a similar area. Yeah, no, this was all in Minnesota. It was all in the the stereo business arena. Like that was all that he was concentrated on for for about 20 years. So he was just cleaning up street corners at that point. <laughs> he was just getting the music out to the people by selling them the equipment. That's, that's in the a stores. nicer way to put it. Yeah. So uh, the Sound of Music store hit hit a good amount of revenue in its first year. And I say a good amount of revenue. The figure I have in our notes is $160,000. But again, I just want to be clear here. There are a lot of conflicting reports Mm -hmm. in the sources. And so while many of the sources referred to $160,000, not all of them did. Some of them had it higher, some lower, and it was a private company, so it didn't have to report. Report those, yeah. Yeah, so let's just say it was doing okay. Now, that was just in revenue. That wasn't in profit. You know, obviously, your profit is dependent upon your product. And stereo equipment's a a decent profit margin if you don't mark it up too high. And if your retail space isn't that expensive. Yeah. So I don't know how profitable the company was, but it was doing good business. Uh, And he was pretty aggressive in those early days as a businessman. By 1969, he had opened two other locations, also in Minnesota. So now there's three stores. And around that same time, he bought out his mysterious partner person, whose name we never learned, and became the sole owner of Sound of Music. Again, the store, not the musical. 
the hills were not alive. With radio equipment? No, no it was just the stores at this point. Just receivers just trampling all over the yes. tulips. And, and having adorable songs as they went to bed. Uh, so once again, the details of the history are pretty sketchy. No one was really chronicling the sound mm-hmm. of music chain of stores. Which means that things probably were not going poorly. No, I mean, no, they weren't. They weren't. Remarkable, and they weren't terrible. Uh, sometime around 1969, 1970, or 1971, this all happened. That's because, again, reporting is shaky. Yeah, and by the end of 1970s, by the end of that, they had yeah. nine stores from three, right? Yeah, they continued to grow throughout the 70s. Again, still focusing on stereo equipment. So he keeps on pushing for the company to grow. And, uh, yeah, he was doing well. He had nine stores open and and... This is when we get up to this pivotal moment in 1981 with the tornado. Do you want me to make the noise again? Uh, It's okay. I think we can just play it back because we have it recorded. Tari can actually insert that wherever she likes into this episode. (laughs) Every five minutes you're going to get a poor tornado sound. Could be. She seems pretty excited about this possibility. We don't know when it's going to happen. All right. So we get this... Regular old uh, music stereo store. They would do commercials and stuff. Schultz would appear on them occasionally. Uh, You know, they had their little Sound of Music logo. And the tornado in question is a truly historic event in this part of Minnesota. It was called the Harmar Tornado. Not the hardy Har Tornado, which is what I first read when I looked at the notes. You thought it was like a hilarious... Tornado from the Catskills or something? No. Like a cartoon tornado. No, no. It's called the Harmar Tornado because it uh, it really devastated the area around the Harmar Mall. Um, some other people call it the Lake Harriet Tornado or the Adena Tornado. And a tornado by any other name would wreak just as much havoc as Shakespeare once wrote or would have if he knew about Eloquent. tornadoes. So this tornado touched down. I, now this I have a lot of information on because when tornadoes happen, people really pay say, attention. The Weather Service does keep decent notes. Yes. So on June 14th, 1981, at 3.49 p.m., the tornado touched down in Adena, Minnesota, and then it began a 15-mile journey to the northwest. And in case you aren't familiar with the way tornadoes travel, well, we live in Georgia where tornadoes are not uncommon uh, tornadoes tend to hop, right? Mm-hmm. They'll they'll touch down. They'll travel along the ground for a bit. They tend to hop up. They might travel another couple of miles, and they might touch down again. So you can have – in fact, we've seen this. We've seen neighborhoods that are completely destroyed with the exception of maybe a house where the tornado just hopped over. I was actually in a tornado quite a few summers back. I want to say like six or seven summers back. And all around me, it there was – destruction, but my little community was fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's happened a few times. Uh, In fact, uh, where I was growing up, the same thing. Well, Sound of Music's main store, the largest store, not their first one, but their largest and most popular store was not so lucky. It was not spared this tornado. So it was a store that was near this Harmar Mall area. And by the way, trying to say Harmar Mall is very tricky for me. You can understand why I thought it was Hardy Har. It's just, Uh, it's easier. Fair enough. And the roof was completely torn off of the store. It raised the roof? It raised it and then threw it away. (laughs) Yeah. And this is a stereo 
you know, store. Like this is still what they're selling is stereos. Like, around this time, they were also looking at getting into other electronics, mm-hmm. but still really largely stereo equipment. And a lot of the stuff was destroyed, but some was salvageable. In fact, all the stuff that was in the storeroom was water damaged, but not completely destroyed. So Schultz got this idea. He said, why don't we have a fire sale, except it's not really a fire sale. It's a water damage sale. A tornado sale is what they would think of it. And they set up a tent essentially across the street in a parking lot from the store. Because, of course, the store was not structurally (laughs) ready for people to walk Mm -hmm. through it. So they set that up. And uh, a lot of histories will mention that this sale, Schultz was talking about offering up the best buys of electronics in the area. So that's how he got the name. That's the way a lot of the stories tell it. But to me, it sounds like uh, it took a little longer for that to really take effect. Like maybe thinking back on these best buys, because they would refer to that again. Uh, They would make this an annual sale. They would have a tornado sale on on the anniversary of the first one in order to try and uh, uh, recapture the performance of that sale. I was going to say, because the sale did really well. Yeah. In four days, they made as much in sales revenue as they would in a full month at that typical store. Wow. Yeah. So that's... You know, that was enough for Schultz to say, like, well, we should definitely do this on the reg. Maybe not with the tornado, but no, with the sales. but with the sales. Yeah. I mean, if you can bring in revenue send, selling your goods at a lower cost, yeah. why not? And there's actually a commercial that you can find on YouTube from 1982, I believe it is, where they refer to getting the best buys. But the store is still Sound of Music at that point. It was before they had changed the name. Uh, and so... Again, this is right around the time they're starting to get into other electronics, particularly the brand new technology known as the VCR. Which predates the Blu-ray and DVD player for those who do not know. Yeah, and is no longer in production as of a few years ago. The very last factory making VCRs stopped doing it. Which is unfortunate because my VCR broke a few years back. Anyhow. (laughs) I know know some guys over at – uh, at a VCR repair company in Wisconsin who could help you out. Nice. Well, back to our story. Yes. So 1983 comes around. And at this point, partly because they're no longer just carrying stereo equipment, but also because they were looking at how the sales uh, uh, event was so successful, Schultz decides to rename his company. This is when he calls it Best Buy. Um, I mean, it makes sense. You want to capitalize on the thing that is bringing you success. Yeah. And also, you no longer want to send people the message that the only thing you're selling is music equipment. Yeah. Or musicals. Yeah. Or or children or nuns. You don't want people to think that those (laughs) are all the things you're selling. But uh, people didn't because the store brought in around $10 million in sales revenue. Yep. Yep. So this was where he had changed the names to all the remaining stores. At that point, there were only seven left. So he had built nine but uh, or had established nine. And now he was down to seven. He made $10 million in that time. And that same year, he would open up a new type of store in a place called Burnsville, Minnesota. And this was the superstore model. So, you know, it would jump into a phone booth and change into a cape and You tights. know, I, I was holding back a Burnsville pun. I'm 
but yours was better and worse. Um, <laughs> At the same time. But Schultz didn't invent the Superstore. No, no. This was uh, an idea that had been around since the 1960s. In fact, the questionable but probable <laughs> original Superstore was called Thrifty Acres, and it was in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which is just fun to say. It is. Uh, and also Circuit City the big competitor to Best Buy, had established its own superstores in the 1970s. So that, the, the Best Buy superstore idea was not brand new. No, but they had a different approach than Circuit City. Yes, because at Circuit City, uh, uh, for you youngins who never went to a Circuit City in that era, they they did things on commission. So they had salespeople who would greet customers as soon as they came in the door. And they would try and find out what the customers were looking for. They would answer questions. They would run through demonstrations. They would typically steer people to the most expensive version of whatever it was they were looking for that just they thought like they when could. You, yeah, just like when you ask what the best thing on a menu is. Yeah. Yeah. If you're like, let me ask you, what do you like, the nachos or the filet mignon? Well, I like the filet mignon, and it goes really well with this very expensive wine. <laughs> and uh, this very expensive radio. Yeah. And also, could I interest you in a radio set? Yeah. So Circuit City did this commission thing. Also, their stock was almost always just in a stock room. They had demonstration models on the floor, but you couldn't just pick up something, put it in a, in a, a cart, and then mm-hmm. push it to a cashier. Instead, you were kind of joined at the hip with the salesperson who, once they had established what you wanted, would uh, arrange for a stock person to go and get it, and then they would ring you up at one of the many cash registers throughout the storeroom. But Best Best Buy let you grab your own stock and bring it up to a cash register, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's very much in the model that if you've ever been a Best Buy, it was like that from the beginning. Which, I mean, to me, I personally would rather have that because I'm not going to go to a store if I feel like I have to buy something. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to go to a store if – hey, I kind of need something and I want to look at options, I'm more likely to buy it than if I'm feeling pressured. Not to say that Circuit City employees were pressuring you. They were. But they were. I mean, because it's it's sales. It's It's what sales sales does, right? Like if you've ever bought anything that had someone working on commission. Because, I mean, the incentive there, obviously, is to make the sale because that's how you make your money, right? You're Mm -hmm. getting money from every sale you make. You don't get money from sales you don't make. So you have the incentive to try and get that sale to close uh, Best Buy, by the way, at the time was also working on commission sales. They just didn't use the distributed cash register model that Circuit City well, did. Which, I mean, means you still might have pushy salesmen. Yeah. But you can also be like, no, I'm going to help myself. Uh, you also have here that Best Buy had uh, lower priced items uh, and low margin products like near the door. They still do today. Yeah. The whole idea was let's get people inside. That's the important Mm -hmm. thing. Get them inside. And even if they just buy these low profit margin items, you still are making a sale. Yeah. And and because they were a big box store, it was successful for them. Unlike Radio Shack, who tried to put in more random objects into their store and it didn't quite fly. Yeah. It never felt like the Radio Shack approach had a coherent strategy to it. And Best Buy had a much more coherent approach. And uh, yeah, so while other companies were kind of struggling with this transition, Best Buy at the time was doing pretty well. It had differentiated itself enough from Circuit City so that the experience of going into a Best Buy was much more casual. Uh, You could see all the stock there. You could, you know, you could ask questions, but there weren't nearly as many salespeople on the floor of a Best Buy as there were at a typical Circuit City. So that was what was setting things apart. But 
this was just the very beginning of Best Buy. And we haven't gotten into how the company would grow exponentially over the next few years or what would happen when the retail apocalypse sets in. We will talk about that, but first we're going to take this quick break. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay, so uh, so Ariel, you know what we could do? We could go year by year of everything that Best Buy ever did. That sounds tedious, Jonathan. It does, and that's why I didn't put it in the notes. All right. So really, let's just give the super short version of what was going on. Sure. Uh, in 1987, Best Buy joined the New York Stock Exchange. It had previously traded as Sound of Music on the NASDAQ. So mm-hmm. now it's moving up in the world of business. In 1989, they stopped doing commission sales, right? Yeah. This is where they got rid of commissions entirely. Uh, this is also where they would make sure the entire stock of the store was on the showroom floor. So they... They very rarely had very much in a stock room in the back. It was essentially convert the entire floor space into the showroom. Yes. This was, by the way, called their Concept 2 store model. Yeah, this was where the original Superstore was Concept 1. This was Concept 2 that rolled out. And uh, again, they they were looking at how to maximize the space for the customer and to they they eliminated even more salesperson. So which customers liked. Yeah, because again, it... It, it put things on the customer's uh, kind of schedule. They, if they had questions, they could ask salespeople about things, but they weren't feeling pressured into buying stuff. Mm-hmm. Which uh, I'm, I'm sure made some companies unhappy. Absolutely it did because it meant that their products weren't being pushed by salespeople super hard. So if you're Whirlpool or your Maytag 
or you're one of these big companies like Sony, mm-hmm. you want the salesperson to steer people toward your products so that they are more likely to buy them because obviously that's how you make your money. And uh, without the commissioned salespeople, that was the, – the fear was customers wouldn't go to these big ticket items as frequently. And so some of these companies said, well, we're just going to take our refrigerators and washers and dryers and we're going to go home. Well, bully on them. Yeah, it didn't last long because the Concept2 stores ended up being immensely popular. And it turns out that if everyone's going there, that's where you got to put your stuff. Mm -hmm. So the companies came, I won't say crawling back, (laughs) but they did come back. Uh, We also got the yellow tag logo around this time. Yep, that's when Best Buy would adopt that. And uh, the company hit a billion dollars in sales revenues in 1992. And by 1993... It was only behind Circuit City in the electronic retail market. And remember, Circuit City had been doing all electronics mm-hmm. for longer and had been uh, more entrenched in that particular market. So this is pretty good. Yeah. Now, they weren't content just to to stick with that and, and ride it out as long as possible because in 1995, we got the Concept 3 store. Yes, which is – Concept 2, but more bigger, as I wrote. (laughs) Yeah, this was where they introduced demonstration areas. If you ever went to a Best Buy where they had like the theater room where Mm -hmm. you could sit down and listen to your ears get assaulted by whatever – Usually it was The Matrix, I think. That was almost always on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was was those uh, concepts. And then uh, beyond that, you would get Concept 4 stores in 1998. They were slightly smaller than Concept 3 stores. And they also put cash registers throughout the stores, kind of like Circuit City did, to distribute the points of sale. But you could still bring your items to that cash register. Yes, yes. So you could have a cash register dedicated for a particular section of the Best Buy. So, for example, if you were shopping music or you were shopping, um, you know, I'm, camera accessories. I think you still sort of can if, like, if you go and you buy a phone. Yeah, it all depends on the Best Buy and it depends on which – Mm-hmm. layout it follows, but yes, you still can do that. And and during this time, they were also opening up new locations in various markets, including international. Mm-hmm. Uh, partially through, uh, I read one article, it says that a partnership with Microsoft helped them expand internationally some. Yeah, that was a big deal was their, their uh, uh, partnership with Microsoft. That was also seen as a big deal just in the industry in general, because here's Microsoft. It's just an enormous company making a deal with a retailer. I mean, that was That was a big deal. That was a big thing. Yeah. And then they also bought Magnolia Hi-Fi. So now you could sit and have your ears assaulted by the Matrix, but you couldn't see what was assaulting your ears because it all looked like rocks or tables. (laughs) Okay. We're going to ignore that. Uh, Best Buy (laughs) then in 2001 had one of its what people in in retrospect would call missteps. They bought a company called Musicland Stores Corporation. And this was a company that had several different retail stores under its ownership that would operate typically in malls. So there were a lot of those music stores that were in malls, things like Sam Goody, music and electronic stores. FYE. A lot of those belonged to this particular company. And the thought was Best Buy was thinking, well, we can we do this really well in retail spaces. So we can do it really well in malls too. And the deal cost $425 million plus Best Buy agreed to assume Musicland's debt, which was another $271 million. She will occur sets a lot. Yeah, more than half a billion when you add in the, the price of the acquisition plus the debt. Uh, by 2002, the division was losing tens of millions of dollars. Again, the numbers kind of vary depending upon the source, but it's always in the tens of millions, mm-hmm. like $60, 70000000 million. 
In 2003, Best Buy would divest itself. It would, quote-unquote, sell Musicland to Sun Capital Partners. But selling is being very generous because they gave it away. I mean, cut your losses while you can, I guess. Sun Capital got the deal cash-free. The only thing that Sun Capital had to agree upon, and this would ultimately collapse that company, but that's a different story, was they had to agree to assume the debt associated with that company. Mm. So Best Buy was out the money they had spent to buy it, but at least they no longer had the debt from Musicland on their ledger as well. Well, around this time, Richard Schultz also retired Mm -hmm. as CEO, right? Yep. He uh, was worth about $2 billion at that point. Good time to retire. Yeah, not not bad. Uh, Brad Anderson, who had joined Sound of Music back in those days, would become the new CEO. He had worked his way up from like salesperson all the way up to, well, now CEO of the company. And uh, you would see this, by the way, in Best Buy, you would see a lot of these leadership positions were from within the company, that- which typically we think of as a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, In the case of Best Buy, as we will ultimately see, spoiler alert, it wasn't always a good thing. I mean, you want to you want to be loyal to your to your employees, but at the same time, you may not have the best candidate within your employees. And sometimes, if there is a problem within the company that you grew up with, then you won't see it. Yeah, you don't see it because it was there the whole time, and you were you you can't see the forest for the trees, is is what we would say. Yeah, but Anderson did make a really good move because he acquired Geek Squad. Yes, and this would end up being a very important part of Best Buy's uh, success, ultimately. And Geek Squad, at the time, was an independent company that was providing tech support to customers. So people would uh, essentially pay Geek Squad to fix their electronics what weren't working no more. Yes, but, you know, not super surprising because we see this a lot when a CEO retires, a first CEO. Mm -hmm. Uh, The company started seeing lower sales. Now, I don't know if that's because of his retirement or just the economy. I think it was a combination. Really, I think it's mostly the economy, honestly. I think Mm -hmm. that the the sales were starting to lag a bit. Uh, It was just one of those cycles that we see. Plus, we were getting into the recession and around this time. In 2008, Best Buy acquired Napster. So do you know what Napster is, Ariel? I do know what Napster is. It's I know it for... Music piracy. Yes, yes. So Napster that Best Buy acquired wasn't exactly the same as that company. So Napster, the piracy one that we associate with, mm-hmm. was a file sharing service, but that had been shut down in 2001. Yeah, the government shut it down. Yes, they were like, This is illegal, guys. You cannot do this no more. Uh, there's no safe harbor for you. You are pretty much enabling music piracy and, and software piracy. Mm-hmm. So... A company called Roxio ended up getting the intellectual property assets. So essentially the rights to use the name and logo of Napster, but not like anything else associated with the company. It was essentially the the appearance of Napster, but not the the soul that's of in- Napster. That's interesting. I guess they were trying to appeal to the people who like Napster for the illegal stuff. Well, they were trying to appeal to young, hip folks who were associating Napster with digital music. Mm. So they took an already existing software called Pressplay. They slapped Napster's name and logo on it. And Best Buy purchased that in 2008 for $121 million. So while you could say Best Buy bought Napster, there's a big asterisk there because it's not it's not the Napster that everyone thinks yeah. about from 2001. Yeah. Um, in 2009, we got a new CEO. So Anderson's- Yeah, we sure did. 
Anderson was out and Brian Dunn was in. Uh-huh. And Brian Dunn had also been with Best Buy since 1985. So he had been there since the, you know, after they changed to Best Buy. But he had been there for, for uh, two decades and had worked his way up and now was leading the company. Uh, in 2011, Dunn oversaw a deal that led to Napster leaving Best Buy and, it, and also uh, would end up merging with a different company called Rhapsody. That's a story in its own. And uh, Best Buy would have a small stake in that company as part of this uh, arrangement. And really, it was an attempt to get out of a flailing business because there were some companies like Pandora and Spotify that were on the rise. And it just looked like Napster was not going to mm-hmm. compete against them. The, and Napster wasn't the only thing they were getting rid of. They also closed some of their overseas stores at that time. Yeah, they were trying to consolidate some of their their assets and get rid of some things that were not being terribly profitable. Then we get to 2011, and this is where things get ugly. Jeez, you didn't allude to that at all when I said Brian Dunn's name, and you're like, ooh, jeez, yeah. yeah. This was a, so Brian Dunn's name would often get listed on like the worst CEOs of 2012, that kind of stuff. And why is that, Jonathan? So the board of directors had an inquiry into Brian Dunn's behavior because there were reports that he was having an inappropriate relationship with a fellow Best Buy employee. So he's CEO, Mm -hmm. uh, this woman who was 29 years old at the time. He was 51. Not that that necessarily should matter. That's not the problem. The problem was that he was CEO. She was also working for him and that this was a relationship that he should have disclosed to HR. Disclosed to HR. Plus, he's also was also married. So there was some other. Now, granted, he has always maintained that it was never a romantic relationship, but there were a lot of people who thought that perhaps that was not entirely true because they were frequently seen together. Hence the inquiry. Yes. And then he would eventually resign in the spring of 2012 under intense pressure from the board of directors. And not very long after that, Richard Schultz, who had no longer been CEO but had maintained his role as chairman of the board, was asked to resign because it became clear he knew about Brian Dunn and this employee but had not disclosed it to the board of directors or the auditors. But despite that and despite his retirement, uh, he tried to buy Best Buy back. Yes, he got the he got the honorary title of Chairman Emeritus, and then he said, "Hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn Best Buy private again. I'm going to lead a buyout of Best Buy." But it turned out he was not able to raise the financing he needed in order to achieve that. So that ultimately went nowhere. Yeah, and by 2012, Best Buy was uh, really kind of spiraling. Yeah, it was not in a good space. Uh, So you had this controversy, you had the departure of the CEO, you had the departure of the chairman of the board. The stock price had fallen to its lowest point in years. Mm -hmm. Uh, The sales of the stores, like the sales at the actual individual retail stores were on the decline. They were either not growing at all or they were actively falling. Uh, other retailers were starting to close up shop. This is what we were referring to with the retail apocalypse. This is where companies like Borders and Radio Shack were really having trouble, and it looked like Best Buy was going to join them, but it didn't. But we'll tell you guys how it didn't after this quick break. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb. Tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Okay, so here's the interesting part of this story. Now, we have said that usually we like companies that promote from within. Mm -hmm. It tends to be good for morale. It gives incentive for people who are working within the company to strive for leadership positions. But it can also blind you from what's going on and failing in a company. So in this case, the board of directors ended up reaching out to an outsider to come in and lead Best Buy, and that would be Hubert Jolie. And uh, he came from like the uh, the sort of the hospitality industry and and things like that. Like he came from a totally different world than retail. But it seems like a, a good complement to the retail world because so much of your product is hospitality to your customers. Yes. And he thought that the first thing he needed to do, and I think this is incredibly insightful, was to talk to actual Best Buy employees and find out what's working What's not working? What are you concerned about? What are you seeing? Because you're the ones operating these stores. You see what's what's happening day by day. And I want to make sure that we figure out how to best move forward. And that ended up by itself helping a lot with employee morale because it showed that he was taking a direct interest in the frontline employees. He, he was using the ever important in business emotional intelligence. Yes, Good old EI. Good old EI. Yeah, so he initiated some really big behind-the-scenes changes for Best Buy. It was called Renew Blue. It was an actual initiative that they referred to it. Yeah. This is also why I said, heaven help you if you wear a blue polo shirt walking into Best Buy because everyone will think you work there. It's like wearing a red shirt at Target. Yeah, yeah. Or on the Enterprise. Yeah, I was about to say, or in Star Trek. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, he did a total redesign of the shipping infrastructure to make it easier for uh, stores to, to... not just know what their individual stock was inside the store, like, you know, how much of each item did they have. They also could quickly figure out where other 
uh, products were and then order them more efficiently. So in other words, he was really streamlining the supply chain side. Mm-hmm. And that can get really dull and boring when you're talking about it, like, from numbers perspectives, but it is so incredibly important for a retail establishment particularly, but really all companies, to have a really strong handle on your supply chain so yeah. you know where everything is. Yeah, and so you don't lose money from overstocking even. Or or, or having – you know, having a, a demand in one store that cannot be met because they can't get hold of the product. Meanwhile, another store has, has an excess of yes. it and nobody wants it. Yes. Uh, in, in addition to this, he also really improved the customer experience as well. So he did that by uh, giving them the option to look at an item in the store and play with it in the store and then decide whether to buy it in store or online. Yeah, and this was in response to something that was already happening, and I'm sure all of you out there have done it. Uh, it's called showrooming in the industry. Mm-hmm. This is the habit of customers going into a physical location to get that hands-on experience uh, with various products, then more often than not, pulling up Amazon on their smartphone and seeing how much it costs on Amazon versus wherever they are. Yeah, so right? instead of fighting it, he embraced it. Yes, and he, and so as part of that, in order to embrace that, he also instituted a price-matching philosophy, saying that if you could find a product for a lower price at, say, Amazon, Best Buy would match that price. Because rather than, you know, deal with the loss of a sale, he's like, well, it's better for us to have a lower profit margin than to not get the sale at all. Which is kind of how Best Buy started in the beginning by having that tornado, tornado sale. sale. Yeah, it was just that this case, the tornado's name was Amazon. Yes. It was a yes. metaphorical tornado. And, and this was a good move because it caused Best Buy's sales to grow. Incredibly. It, it grew so fast. It reached uh, to the point where the online sales for Best Buy would make up 16% of their total revenue, which was already incredible. So mm-hmm. this was also a really important strategy. It wasn't just that he was making the store experience better. He was making the online experience better too. And that was where they were really able to compete. So you could use – you could marry the two, right? You could mm-hmm. go to Best Buy, look at the stuff – make your decision, you order it online, or maybe you order it online, you go to the store, you pick it up, that kind of thing, so it's ready at the moment that you purchase it. This was the other way to fight Amazon. It was saying, yeah, you could order it from Amazon. Uh, You're going to get the same price as what we do. You might also have to pay for shipping, plus you're going to have to wait three or four days. And then if you get something that somehow got destroyed in the shipping process, you would have to return it and wait for a new one. Yeah, You could go look and see what you were picking up. At the Best Buy store. Yeah, yeah. And if it was a delivery thing, it was a delivery thing from a store that was down the street as opposed to a warehouse that might be in another part of the state. So it was incredibly effective. Uh, But on top of this, Jolie didn't just fight Amazon. He actually played nice with them a little bit too. Yeah, uh, this was a very – this could have gone either way too. He he started using parts of Best Buy stores to act as sort of mini stores for companies that would typically be competitors or maybe – direct vendors to Best Buy. So you could find uh, a a little section that was essentially sponsored by Amazon or sponsored by another company. And Best Buy was earning revenue this way because they were essentially charging rent. Mm -hmm. So in this case, Best Buy became a landlord. And these other companies like Google and Amazon, they took advantage of it because they lacked that 
capability that Best Buy had, which mm-hmm. was they didn't have a physical space where you could go in and take a look at these products. Uh, even companies like Apple, which does have its own stores, it was using places like Best Buy because they don't have stores everywhere, but mm-hmm. Best Buy is far more widespread than Apple stores are. Yeah. Now, another tentpole of these these changes he was putting in was customer service, and one of the ways he improved that was by expanding Geek Squad's milieu, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Geek Squad became not just tech support, but also sort of ambassadors and evangelists and ultimately salespeople. And in-home consultants. Yep, yep. So, you know, the the philosophy under Geek Squad, it's it's all very, let's, like, don't put any pressure on the customer. Like, your, your goal is always trying to sell more, but not in a way that's going to make the customer feel like the experience is an unpleasant one. Uh, it's rather you really do need to use your expertise. So let's Mm -hmm. say you go into a person's home and they said, yeah, I want to make a home entertainment center and this is the room that I have. And you're you're supposed to really use your expertise to say, well, based upon the size of this room, how much light is coming in, here's the television I would recommend, here's the sound system I would recommend, that kind of thing. Because it's it's real frustrating when you go and you buy a solution for your home that you think will work and it doesn't quite fit or it doesn't quite hook up correctly. Or maybe there's so much glare from the the window Windows, that you're not, yeah. not able to watch it very well. Also, there's always the problem of the, the sets you see in the store have been specifically tuned so that they look really good in the store. Mm-hmm. But when you get one home, it hasn't been tuned yet. And it can be a bit daunting to do that. Again, yeah. Geek Squad would do this sort of stuff. They would not just hook everything up, but they would set it so that the settings of the television would be, or whatever, would be best a best match with the space. Mm-hmm. And this ended up really helping set Best Buy apart as well, because these other companies didn't have that. And, and then uh, Jolie uh, put in, he used his emotional intelligence again because he improved employee benefits. Yes, yes. One of the things that they had lost in recent years was a really hefty discount on Best Buy products. He brought that back. So now uh, employees could actually buy Best Buy products for a significant discount. Um, He also was looking at other ways to help. Largely, he was trying to avoid layoffs as best he Mm -hmm. could. Occasionally, he still had to do it. He said it's always you know, something that that you may have to consider, but it should be very far down the list of considerations. You should be able to, you know, try and exhaust other options first. Yeah. And uh, this ultimately did improve employee morale, at least if you look at employee turnover, because before he took the role, employee turnover was 50%. Like 50% of Best Buy's employees were leaving every year, Mm -hmm. which, you know, a company having to attract and hire 50% of its workforce every single year. I mean, just to maintain, not even to grow, that's an incredible expense. He got that down to 30%, which is still pretty high, but, but much lower than 50. That's a lot better. Yeah. Uh, all of these changes, all of these things are what really has helped Best Buy survive this this retail apocalypse and not just survive, but thrive. Yes. This is where we're seeing Best Buy do really well. I mean, if you look at any uh, Google search of Best Buy performance, you're going to see lots of articles that go into an analysis on this. And they all pretty much agree with the things that I've stressed that Jolie has brought in. The the turning the Best Buy stores into showrooms, acknowledging the problem of the showrooming experience mm-hmm. and making sure that the price matching and the app experience 
mitigates that as much as possible. You know, having the Geek Squad really sets it apart. And now we've seen Best Buy reporting revenues of $42.1 billion in, in the fourth quarter of 2018. So that's... I it's mean, good. And, I don't know their operating costs, but that's pretty good. Well, they cut their their debt in half, so that's nice too. Yeah. So that tells you that not only are they doing well, but they're addressing the problems they have with their debt. So, yeah, this has been um, a pretty bumpy ride for Best Buy, but I would say that upon uh, the the emergence of Jolie as CEO, things have really turned around. In fact, I guess because Brian Dunn ultimately sort of cause this, mm-hmm. you could argue, you could call it a done deal. Oh, Jonathan. All right. I'm going to move on to a fun fact because- That wasn't one. That was, No. <laughs> it was a fun pun. Uh, so one of the things that we didn't talk about in all these initiatives and, and changes that Jolie put into place was all of the electronics and recycling, uh, appliance recycling that Best Buy does. Mm-hmm. Uh, since 2009, as of recording this, Best Buy has recycled 2 billion pounds of electronics and appliances. And recently they've made a change. So when the Geek Squad comes out to your house, they can take away the old equipment and cords and cables and things like you don't want and bring them back to Best Buy for free recycling. Now, if you've got like a big appliance or something, you still have to call them to pick it up for a fee. But Yeah. But if it's something like the smaller stuff, that's great because electronics recycling is a real problem. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff that goes into electronics that is potentially environmentally harmful. Uh, Also, biologically harmful to people and Mm -hmm. animals and stuff. So it's a real challenge, especially in an age where, you know, a lot of us have been conditioned to want to replace our electronics on a fairly regular basis. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that's admirable. I uh, really enjoyed looking into this. Like, it's been a long time since I've set foot in a Best Buy. There's one that's not too far from my house, but I don't ever go into it. I go fairly, fairly often because my husband likes to spend his reward points. Oh, I just I remember when there used to be like the big section of music and the big section of like the giant boxes of computer games. Mm-hmm. And obviously those industries have changed dramatically too. Now yeah. we have far more digital downloads for both games and music. Uh, so that definitely impacted Best Buy as well. But the company has been able to shift with the changes in the marketplace. So yeah. it's done well. Yes. Uh, so thank you, Emily and Ryan, for the suggestion. Thank you for suggesting a company that did not spiral and implode. Into bankruptcy. (laughs) Yeah, because we've done a lot of those recently, so it's nice to talk about the other side of it. Yeah, um, and if you guys have, if anybody else out there has topics they want us to cover or companies they want us to look into, you can email us at feedback at thebrinkpodcast.show. Yep, and you can visit our website. That's thebrinkpodcast.show. You'll find an archive of all of our past episodes, plus information about your beloved hosts. That's us. And we will talk to you next time. I have been Jonathan Strickland. And I have been Ariel Casting. Business on the Brink is a production of iHeartRadio and How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more.